Well, good morning. Um, so next month, a group of us from church are going to start at the Missouri River and try to ride bicycles all the way to the Mississippi River, right across the state of Iowa with Ragbri. And I've gotten a few questions of why. And honestly, it's a legitimate question that I don't have a good answer for. Why would we want to ride a bicycle and not a vehicle? Um, but one of the things is I've been getting into cycling and getting into bike riding and all that stuff is it's fascinating to me the whole concept of drafting, drafting someone. Like, you know, you, you see that like birds flying in the V for formation, but in cycling, for real, if someone's riding a bike and you're trying to kind of, you've got 500 miles you're trying to cover, that if you truly ride right behind somebody else, it's 30% easier. So the person in the front who would be riding just by themselves, if they're going 100% energy to go 50 miles, if a person's riding right behind them, it's 30% easier. But then you can have someone riding behind them and riding behind them and riding behind them. So you could have a whole group of people where only one person is going 100% and everybody else is going 60%. And so uh, it's just a fascinating reality and, and you might not care about it. But why I think it pertains to here is there is this international symbol or movement that when you are the lead person and you are desiring not to be the lead person anymore, and you're wanting to start drafting other people and take a break for a while, you flick your elbow. Like, that's it. That's like the international, like the Tour de France, I think, starts next month or something or in a few weeks. And you'll see them, like teams of riders, and they do this. And that means, um, now it would be funny if like the whole team did this at the same time and it's like, oh wow, we are all equally tired here. But the idea is the person on front does the elbow flick, uh, then, uh, then the a person behind them who's been drafting moves to the front. And uh, then when they feel like they could use a break, they do the elbow flick. And my, my Uncle Joe, um, I've ridden with him a few times and he's criticized me on riding for too long. He's like, Tim, are you trying to be a hero or something? Like, he's like, you should have flicked your elbow like 10 minutes ago. Like, what are you doing here? And so I think summertime in a church is a good time to flick your elbow for some people. Um, many have been like going really hard, have been, I was talking to somebody this week that was like, man, I just feel like a lot of people in our church have been going really hard and they're tired. And what was really interesting, in the same meeting, another person said, actually, I am super energized. I am like ready to take the hill, and I've been talking to other people who are like ready to take the hill, and we're like, let's go. And it's like, oh, you need to flick your elbow, and you need to let them draft you. And because one of the things that's fascinating is like even, oh, come on up, buddy. <laughs> Bubba. Um, so one of the things that I think is interesting is that sometimes in the church, people start getting tired and what starts happening is they keep going and they keep going until they're like really tired and then they keep going until they're hurt, incredibly tired, feel wounded, people are taking advantage of them and then some of those people that I've met with stop going to church. And they just like, like fade. 
And a lot of times they would say their walk with God fades at the same time. And what I think is fascinating about the whole cycling metaphor is that when you flick your elbow, you keep going the same speed as everybody else. You're still in the group, you're still going the same speed to the same destination, but it's 60% easier because people are coming around you and blocking the air from you and all that stuff. So um, what I would say is like, if you feel really energized, look for the elbow flicks of other people and come around and let them draft you. If you're, uh, if you're needing to flick your elbow, flick your elbow. I know that's like the weirdest illustration I've ever given about anything, but um, if you're coming up saying, okay, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I have energy, and what would it look like for me to step up in the church, then I would love for that to happen. So does that sound okay? <laughs> okay, we are in verse one of Genesis 21 today. Uh, we will um, we'll keep pressing into this next week. Verse 1 of 21 says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I love just thinking about this moment, thinking about these seven verses. And I, I was thinking this week about like, what if I would have been in Abraham and Sarah's lives? What if we would have been in small group together at church? I think for decades, when we had time to share prayer requests, this would be the prayer request they would lead with for decades that this promise was coming and that they've so desired to have a son and that this gift was coming, that God had been promising this for decades and even had many, many, many years ago even given them the name. They didn't, he didn't even let Abraham and Sarah choose the name. It's like, this is such a sure deal. Isaac is his name and he is coming. And they waited, they yearned, they waited, and sometimes they waited really patiently. And sometimes they waited really impatiently. Sometimes their waiting was godly, and sometimes their waiting was sinful as they took matters into their own hands. And uh, this gift has finally come. I mean, I've, I've tried this week just to put myself in their shoes of decades of longing for that one thing for God to say yes to. What must it have felt to them to feel that? And the gift has come. And it was so clear how the, that was written, that first verse especially, that God was the one who made it happen. It's not like Sarah finally took the right nutrients finally was, did the right thing. It was like, no, God finally said yes. 
God intervened. He, he allowed this to happen. Sarah convened. And then Abraham obeys God by giving the name Isaac. You know, Abraham could have been like, I'm not feeling Isaac. We're going to go with some Dan or something. Um, but instead, it's like, no, his name is Isaac. That's what God said. And then Abraham obeys God again and circumcises him on the eighth day. So we have, we have Abraham doing two things right away that God told him that he was supposed to do. And what's cool is Sarah laughs. This has been kind of an inside joke, it seems like, between God and Sarah in some ways. It wasn't a joke at first, but Sarah laughed at the idea that she could ever have kids. And here I think she's laughing a deep laughter of joy that her deepest longing has just been fulfilled. And it just laughter is coming from this beautiful moment. And it, 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 we didn't plan for this, but it was kind of interesting that this landed on Father's Day, that it was actually Abraham longing for this son for so long. And on Father's Day, we're, we're here. And at the same time of all of that, the genius of Scripture the genius of not just the words of Scripture, but the form of Scripture, is that I think Scripture is always saying more than we will ever be able to grasp. And that's not to mean it's confusing, but when I, if I were one day to stand in front of Mount Everest, I would never even pretend to be able to fully understand what I'm looking at, to fully comprehend what I'm looking at. And I think the depth of Scripture is that way, that yes, a, a, a little child with Down syndrome can understand, truly understand God through His Word. And none of us will ever be able to fully mine the depths of the Word of God. And I think there's something unsettling in these seven verses. One of the things I think is unsettling in these seven verses is that it's only seven verses. Like, I've stood back and I've been like, for decades, we've been looking at, like, for decades, Abraham has been waiting for this. For chapters and chapters, we've been in the life of Abraham for this moment, this crescendo moment. And when I step back and I look, it's like this much in my Bible. It's like, I feel like it should be more than that. I feel like it should be more than seven verses. And... I think Abraham is learning something here for us to learn. I think Abraham is being clued into something that God would you clue the youngest in the room to the oldest of the room into, is that even when our focus is on God's gift, even if our focus is on the most epic gift that God could ever give us, that the, the invitation is never the magnitude of the gift. The, the, the expectation is never, let's spend chapters absorbing the, mag, like the magnitude of this gift. The invitation of our, of our lives is for our life to be intertwined with the giver of the gift. Like, there's only seven verses that really highlight the gift. And the giver is mentioned... <laughs> popcorn throughout those seven verses. So 
what God is not desiring Abraham to like, hey, Abraham, here's this gift. It's got a nice bow on top. And God isn't desiring Abraham to take this gift and go home with it and sit down and open the gift and be like, oh, this is such a great gift. And then they all live happily ever after with this gift that Abraham's just been given. That is how our culture, I think, views God. I think that's the default of our view of God. Like, God, here's all of the gifts I'd like you to give me. Please give them to me with a bow on top. I will go back into my home and my life, and I will live happily ever after with the gifts that you've given me. Like, I'm not trying to minimize the gift of Isaac. Um, And... But what we're seeing throughout the entire book of Genesis, and if we were on the ground in Genesis 21, so if we were able to actually like be on the ground in Genesis 21, we could, just as it's so sweet to look at Esme, like we could look at Isaac like that and just be like, oh, Genesis 21, warm fuzzies, Isaac is here. Like we could meditate on Isaac. Or we could devote our, our meditation on Abraham and Sarah. Wow, look at those very old people. I've never seen someone that old, you know, breastfeeding a child. Like, it just, it would strike, it'd be striking to be like, wow, this is happening. And I think the invitation of Genesis 21 is like, say, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah, oh my gosh, what type of a God is like this? And I think even in Genesis 21, where we are to dwell our attention is what type of a heart does he have to be patient for so long, even in all of the sin that Abraham walked in? Like, what type of heart does he have? What type of patience does he have? What type of love does he have? What type of power does he have? And is he the same way towards me? Is he only like that towards Abraham, or is he like that towards others? What does he want of me? What what does a God like that want of me? And has he made promises to me? Has he made promises to me like he's made to Abraham? So after these seven short verses, we have a conflict. I feel this like, like just doing dishes is like a picture of this, I feel like. It's like, I can get our kitchen really nice. And then the next day at the same time, I'm like, what happened? This was beautiful yesterday. It doesn't stay that way. And I feel like this is a similar thing. Look at verse eight. And the child grew and was weaned, Isaac. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So Isaac is no longer a baby. Abraham decides to throw an epic party. And I'm certain that the nature of this party, because of all God had done in Abraham's life, this was going to be a God-centered party where we are celebrating the huge promise that God has given to us. 
Okay, this is worth hooray. I think I'm going to go into VBS just for a second, if that's okay. There was a word from like 500 years ago that we learned. Yeah, Avery, I know, it's coming. I'm about ready to drop it. Okay, you ready? Okay, so there's this word, huzzah. Yes, come on. So huzzah means hooray. So when I say huzzah, you say hooray. Okay, so this is a huzzah moment. This is a, that moment. This is that moment. It is a celebration moment. It's a moment to laugh, high five. God has done incredible things in our midst. Let's throw a party and let's get after it and praise him. And everybody's laughing, but, you, but Sarah can tell that Ishmael is laughing at them. He's not laughing with them in joy of what God has done. He's laughing at them. And um, Sarah is like, he's got to go. Him and Hagar have to go. And this is like the party moment. You know, I don't know if you've had these moments in your life where you're like, like Christmas Eve, like, no, this is happy time. You know, we can't be sad. There can't be conflict. We're supposed to be happy right now. Like, I feel like this is kind of that, like, this should be the greatest party. And now it's becoming the biggest conflict of my life. And I don't know what to do. And it says, look at verse 11. This thing was very displeasing to Abraham that maybe one of his sons would have to leave because he's laughing at what God is doing in the life of his other son. And typically, Abraham, this is where he messes up. Almost every time in the book of Genesis, when Abraham gets in like a out of his comfort zone moment, he takes matters into his own hands and does the wrong thing. And I think Abraham is actually growing in his walk with God because this is not the same old script of like blessing, conflict, mess up. Blessing, conflict, mess up. Now this is, look at verse 12. This is what the very next thing that happens where Abraham doesn't know what to do and he's really feeling um, out of a lot. Like he, he doesn't know what to do and it feels terrible. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's who Jesus is coming through, is Isaac. Verse 13, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So God speaks to Abraham. And I feel like what would happen in our like rural community, um, because, you know, when like trees fall down on our property, nobody's coming to help us um, except for each other. Um, you know, when, when you can't get down your driveway, there really isn't like where I live, it's like I can't call the city like I used to when I lived in, in a city and be like, hey, I can't drive down my road. Somebody come and fix it. Like, I feel like there has to be a healthy level of I can fix this or we can fix this. And I feel like with Abraham, like the whole Ishmael Hagar thing is his mess up. He could have said to God, 
God, I took matters into my own hands, contrary to your promises. God, I, I was the one who slept with Hagar. Uh, my son Ishmael was my own sinful doing. I made this mess. I will clean it up. I feel like that's like the, I got myself into this. I'm going to get myself out of this. But Abraham is actually growing beyond that. Abraham is growing out of those lies. That's what they are. Those are lies. He is growing out of those lies, and he is knowing God's place in his life. Because God is not this far away God who comes near once in a, in a while, gives a gift, and then bounces. But what is happening in verse 12, and the image that I just keep thinking about this week, and it's a little silly, but I just think of like an old grocery store, like I worked in Fairway back when we had to like put a price on every item and stuff, and I think we had like these microphones that you could push it down and it would go throughout the speakers, and I feel like this is like a clean up in aisle nine type moment. Like, uh, oh my gosh, what if I uh, clean up in aisle nine, please? And that's not a way to minimize Ishmael. It's not a way to, to tap out of responsibility. But what Abraham is learning is like, he got himself into that mess. And when he tries to get himself out of the mess, it becomes more of a mess. And when actually he invites God into the mess, he finds the path towards healing and the path towards change. And what I love here is what God tells Abraham is, you can send Ishmael away. You can send Hagar away. I have them. You can let them go because I'm not going to let them go. And I love that God is actually showing that he's going to be intimate, intimately close to these two people. He said, I'm going to take care of them. And what I love is like even people who are laughing at God, he's pursuing and taking care of them. Like that's who he is. He couldn't stop doing that if he tried. It's in his nature. And Abraham says, okay. Abraham actually trusts God that God is going to take care of them. And Abraham knows that the giver of life has them in his hands and they'll be provided for. But look what happens in verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. So this is Hagar. They've drank all the water. Hagar is putting her son uh, like underneath a bush for shade. I've been in this area. There's nothing green and it is dry. It's like outside of Phoenix, Arizona type, type dry. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. I love this verse. Up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and, fi and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. This well is still there today in Beersheba. 
Um, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So truly, like, very serious life circumstances are happening here. I mean, this is, like, if, if we really enter into this moment in Scripture, like, this isn't just your, like, everything is awesome, like that Lego song. Like, this is, like, very serious situation. Celebration has turned into chaos. Laughing out of a God-satisfying joy and being deeply troubled are happening in the same day. And the central focus, because we see this in the first seven verses of Genesis 21, and it's saturated throughout this next section of, of chapter 21, is God. He is the center of this chapter, that he is in control, that his promises, his pursuit of those who are even laughing at him, that he actually just desires the affection of a mother and a son to hold each other while he is saving their lives. He, he pursues us. He pursues that we would follow his way. He, he pursues that we would follow his life. And man, for Father's Day, like the, the greatest, for, 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 our, for right now, this room, if we would be men who aren't like just trying to be like, I'm going to get myself out of this or I'm going to build a stairway to heaven because I'm a good carpenter or whatever it may be, but men who are like, man, God has made many promises to me and I have messed up in so many ways. There were times I laughed at him, but I'm not laughing at him anymore. He is teaching me his ways. I'm learning from him. And he is starting to become the center of my life. And would you follow my broken self as we follow the healed one? Man, that's the most powerful, testosterone-infused, courageous, against our cultural ways, but walking in truth that the fathers that would truly be reflective of the Father quick to confess where we are falling short of being like our heavenly father and also quick to follow him to receive his promises. I love that Abraham and Sarah celebrated that they received the greatest gift that they had ever been longing for. And on the day that Abraham was receiving the promise he always desired, he was grieved with a God-sized problem. And this is us. This is our condition too. Even the, the more that we give our lives to Jesus, the more he's going to open us up to areas that we need him. Like not just one day, but we need him right now. And that, that our passion would be the giver and not the gifts. So we would thank him for the gifts that he gives us. Thank him for the promises that he gives us. But to say, more than any of these, what I want is you. I want to walk with you. I want to learn from you. And man, if you wonder, maybe God only cared about Abraham and he knows you too well that he actually doesn't care about you. He's disgusted by you. 
like you should feel a lot of shame in his presence or any of that stuff, um, let, let this verse, which was written for you, burn away the fog. Jesus says to you, Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In the way that Abraham was learning how to walk with God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Does it feel like he's unsure about this? Does he feel like he's a little like, hey, I'm still trying to work this out, but no, I mean... You will find rest for your soul when it's in his hands. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Um, I think we should come to him. (laughs) Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this isn't a gift that we walk away, open up, and live happily ever after. This is a like... I think I'll have to probably come to him in an hour and find rest again. I think tomorrow morning I'll have to come to him to find rest. I think when we're in Colorado and not sleeping well and eating too much sugar and, I, and somehow like when I sleep, I'm not getting rest. We come to, and no worry parents, we'll all be well rested and we'll come back, it'll be wonderful. Um, but at the same time, like even on the mountaintop of a camp experience, there's valleys where, and, and even on the mountaintop, it's like, I need to rest in you. These gifts are good, but they're, they're not you. Would we come to Jesus, and if you have never come to him in a way where you just say, here's my life, it's in your hands, do what you want, be my savior, I'm yours. Would you come to him that way today? I I desire and pray that that there is an unmistakable burning inside of you that's not just the heat of a room, but is like a man, there is something deep in me that I'm being called to him. Also, he is so wonderful that people come to him where what he says, what people say is, I believe, help my unbelief. Come to him on those terms. He is gracious to receive you on those terms. I believe, help my unbelief, done come to Jesus with our celebrations, man, I'm feeling your promises, your blessings to me, your gifts to me. I am laughing. I am so enjoying where you have me in my life right now. Thank you. I want you. I want to be closer to the one who gives gifts like that. Come to Jesus with your darkness. This is not a place where you get cleaned up and then you come. This is a place where together we come to him and say, wash me white as snow. Not, not in an arrogant way, but in a way that he promises us that he will do that when we come to him. So it's actually humility for us to come to him in that way. Um, a beautiful way for us to tangibly be coming to him is through communion. He gave us this as a gift of his presence in our life. And we'll have uh, two, the McCords will be serving us communion today. So the way that we do that here 
is that we uh, spend some moments just communing with him, praying to him. If this is all new to you, uh, what I would recommend is just, you don't have to talk to me. I'm not like your go-to between you and God. You could actually just talk to him and be like, hey, if this is real, would you show me? I think I want to come to you. If like, it's a yes on your end, I think it's a yes on my end, so let's do this. And it, like, you could do that. Talk to him in that way. Um, I would love, or someone close to you would love to help you with that if you, if you have some, some questions in the meantime. But a beautiful thing for us to do is to, is to spend some moments letting him do whatever he wants to do, and then for us who have given our lives to Jesus to boldly come to the table. And the way that we do that is we'll come down the center, the McCords, hold your hand out, they will give you the bread, and then wine or juice, obey your conscience, um, and then we'll take the elements, we'll remain standing together, and I'll lead us in taking it together as family. So let's, let's come to him, let's come to the table.